story and japan is famous for this you know even in the corporate world you know high suicide rates because people just push themselves to the limit and they don't know when to pull back and it's shameful to pull back and what's interesting in kenya like for example they <clears throat> the dropout rates in races is is ridiculously high you know the kenyans have got no shame about pulling out of a race even where you know in the west and in japan that's a kind of shameful thing to do you've got to keep yeah. pushing you've got to keep trying yeah. welcome to ultra habits here we go under the hood with our guests to unpack the minutiae and to understand what processes and systems they engage or research that result in ultra-enhanced living. Howdy folks, it's RJ Singh from the Ultra Habits Podcast and I got my sidekick again, Mara May. Now interestingly enough, we introduced our last guest. I was with Mara May and I was actually wearing the same color t-shirt, so there you go. So we have a fantastic guest on this week, Adharanand Finn. Now he is one of my favorite writers, super, super dynamic author, man. He's written The Rise of Ultra Runners, The Way of the Runner, and Running with the Kenyans. And it's effectively investigative journalism with a lot of humor, fun, and he is an absolute running fanatic. He goes and lives and immerses himself in running cultures. And The Way of the Runner it's Japanese running culture, running with the Kenyans, self-explanatory, and the rise of ultra runners, which of course is my favorite. He goes and smashes himself on some pretty epic courses and runs to really understand what makes the crazy ultra community tick. So I hope you enjoy this episode and let me know your feedback. Keen as always to hear what you took out of it, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Mara May. And I are out of here. Peace. Yeah. At Haranan, I hope I'm pronouncing your name right. I'm Indian. And I had to go to some of my Indian friends to yeah. actually ask them how to pronounce your name correctly. So I'm not proud of that fact, but it's well, at Haranan, right? Well, I'll lay you into a secret is that I don't really pronounce it correctly myself, but I figure as it's my name, I can pronounce it how I like. So I kind of anglicize it, which is because that because that's how my parents said it. So I grew up being a Daranan with the H silent. So a Daranan. Right. Uh, but then I've since had lots of lessons from Indian people. It's Adar Anand. Adar Anand is, is, is how I. So the H is definitely there, whereas I, a Daranand, I do it like that. So you, so you do adherit, ad, ad, a Daranand. A Daranand. Right. It's a rhyme with another land, a Daranand. A Daranand. And it means eternal bliss. Yeah. And so were your parents hippies? Yeah, pretty much. That's that's the simple answer. I mean, there's a longer answer that they were kind of had an Indian teacher. They were living in an ashram in London. Right. Uh, but yeah, it was all there was a lot of that kind of there's a lot of kids of my age with uh, kind of pretty crazy names and uh you know, born in London at that time was, you know, everyone, everyone was not everyone, but a whole section of society was, you know, breaking the mold of what everyone else was doing. And they, they weren't going to call their kids, John and Mark. And Right. And so because of the way that your parents were, did you grow up in a pretty flexible environment? Were they strict? Like what was growing up in the house like? Yeah, it was probably quite unusual. Uh, it wasn't it wasn't overly strict, but it wasn't overly lax either. They were kind of probably normal on that level. But 
just little things like we were all vegetarians so we brought up not eating meat which in the 70s was you know bit, a lot more unusual than it is now we went to, yeah <laughs> we went to the we then moved out of london to a kind of small town called northampton and went to the local schools there so it was kind of a very normal town in, in middle of england and then we we turned out, we all had really long hair up until the age of about 14 15 i had long hair my mum used to you know don't cut your hair like all the other mums cut your hair my mum was don't cut your hair so yeah it was an unusual upbringing in many ways uh they continued having their their teachers so they they were kind of meditating a lot uh and yeah they were pretty pretty chilled out generally but we lived in a kind of normal neighborhood so we were we were the slightly unusual family but we got on with everybody else fine then are are you still yeah. a vegetarian yeah yeah i've never never tasted meat never tried meat so and your family children wife yeah so my wife was vegetarian before i met her they're not long, lifelong uh since she was about 18 so it just felt natural to bring our kids up vegetarian but and 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 they're all they're all pretty adamant vegetarians now they my eldest daughter she's like there's no way i could eat me i don't want to eat me i have no desire to eat me but i'm slightly annoyed that you brought me up vegetarian because because that's why i have no <laughs> desire to eat me and you know i felt she felt like i'd made that choice for her but mm. i feel like it's a choice either way you know it, you you choose to give your kids meat or not either way it's a choice and and you're then kind of you know then there's lots of people who might want to be vegetarians but they can't give up meat because they love it so much and it's a bit like you know you get you get used to a certain thing and and it just felt natural we weren't making meat i'd never never cooked meat in my life i wouldn't know where to begin so yeah it just felt like hey it feels healthy it's good for the planet you know there's 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 yeah. lots of benefits so we yeah. just without really thinking too hard about it we just went with it so and, and when you're dating your wife i guess it's like almost narrows the pool it's like well you know what you're a vegan or you're a vegetarian so like it's almost like hey you know <laughs> well it, i i don't feel like it was like that i don't feel like i had to you know i don't feel like i had to have a vegetarian or vegan partner it just i i don't think that maybe subconsciously perhaps but it was consciously it wasn't part of the equation no no but food is such a big thing in that way right like if you're a vegetarian or you're a vegan especially with the views that many vegans have it'd be difficult to be with someone that's eating burger king right like you know what i'm saying yeah. like, like big mac dripping right in front of you you know what i'm saying yeah i guess so i mean i got together with my wife when we were very young so i wasn't like we 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 first met when we were 19 and then we got together when i was 21 and so i guess i don't i guess i didn't wasn't thinking about long term mm. compatibility at that point it was just no. you know no it didn't matter about no. anything that you know what was going on that day so so i guess it from that point of view i never thought about it but yeah if i if i got to the point of thinking so who am i going to settle down with you know and then this person is yeah perhaps if someone's vegetarian that seems more compatible but yeah. I don't know. It's not a biggie for me. I, I've got, I've lived with people who eat meat. I've had lots of friends who eat meat and I don't really have any problem with that. So. No, you're, you're, I feel like I know a lot about you from your writing and I really enjoy your writing style. And I think I've come to appreciate British humor 
since living in Australia, I'd say I'm an American. And if you and I, if I would have read your books without living in Australia, I probably would have missed the subtleties because your humor and the way you take the piss out of yourself <laughs> in the environment is really funny. Yeah. But as an American, I, 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 you know, growing in America, I tended to uh, to move towards obvious humor, right? Like slapstick yeah. in your face, right? Yeah. And I think just speaking to you um, and getting a sense of you through Zoom, you can really your style comes through your writing. Right. And so, let's talk about your obsession or fascination with running and how the hell did that evolve for you right right from the beginning right mm. so i mean i mean i did go through this in the books but i mean i mean i i so I, I i grew up in this kind of area with you know not much sport going on at all basically but we played outside a lot so we were running around the whole time but it was nothing there were no clubs or no groups it was kind of a, a slightly less well-off part of town and and the school didn't have sports teams and then when I was about 12 or 11 or 12, I went to, a, we moved to another part of town where the schools were a bit nicer. And suddenly they had organized sport at school and there was a cross country race. And they were telling me, so we were putting these teams and apparently this guy was the best runner. And, you know, he was on my team. So I was quite excited, you know, and I, I knew nothing about competing. Anyways, I, I won the race quite easily. And I was, I remember, I didn't even feel like I tried, but something in me, obviously, I, I was running along with this other guy at the front. And at some point before we got to the end, he said, let's finish together. And that just sparked something in me. I was like, well, no way. I'm not finishing with you. You're obviously struggling. So I just, I just left <laughs> so, so oh, that's funny. Yeah. That's funny. So it's funny, that little moment kind of, I guess awoke something in me and then and then everyone was collapsing over the line I remember and falling down exhausted and I I felt like I hadn't even done anything so I was like well and the teacher kept going look at him he's not even breathing he kept saying to the others so I was thinking well maybe I'm quite good at this but then it did take I kind of didn't do anything outside of school and the cross country was only once a year so for about three years I won the cross country every year and then we had the sports day and I won that on the 800 and the 1500 I think I broke the school record in the 800 so my dad just said well you know we better ring up the running club you know he's quite good at running and so I joined the running club and uh yeah I got I got fairly serious I'm I once made the top 20 in the national cross country but generally I wasn't yeah I was, I was good enough. I was like top two in the county so mm. I was running nationals for the county and that kind of stuff and I was training like four or five times a week until I was about 17, 18, maybe even 19. I, I, I kind of started petering out and I got, I, I kept getting injury injuries and I was, you know, the, the advice was all bad in those days. It was like stretch your injuries. Yeah, and right. was, I've since learned that stretching was probably doing me more harm than good. So the more I got injured, the more I stretched my injuries. I, I had, I got to a point where I had to do like 40 minutes of stretching before I ran out for a run. I just kept doing more and more and more and it kept getting worse and worse and then university just kind of there was just so much else going on in terms of uh social life should mm. we say yeah right hangover <laughs> uh, yeah and I I'd been quite disciplined up to that point so like but lots of people were going out 
being a bit hedonistic at 17, 18, I, because of my running, I was quite disciplined. I didn't drink, I didn't smoke. So I was, I kind of, I guess I felt like I had a bit of catching up to do on that sort of stuff. And so then running just was in the background for quite a few years. But it's interesting, wherever I lived, I joined the local running club and I would go to the sessions, but I would only run two or three races a year. Uh, and I was never very good. I, I kind of got quite put on quite a bit of weight, but it was always it was always something I did once or twice a week, say I'd go out for a run. But it wasn't it was kind of on the back burner. And I, I but I'd always have a pair of running shoes in my in my collection and and I think I always just thought I was, you know, I would get back to it at some point. And then before you know it, I was 35 and I realized, I think I went to, I, I was living in London and I'd been a couple of years that I, I still loved watching running. And I went to watch. The Which well, is weird, right? like how many people I, really like watching running, right? Well, as a sport, you know, as like track and the Kenyans and the, I, I, I've, I've always been, you know, I've been a big fan of that. So I would go down and watch the London Marathon because it was, you know, you'd have Haile Gebre Selassie. And I mean, I didn't even know all the runners, but I knew they were the top Africans and they were, you know, they was going to be breaking. Can I ask record. you, at how renowned, what is it like to see people running that fast in real yeah. life? Because I've actually never witnessed that oh, yeah, for that yeah. far. Uh, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's kind of insane. I mean, you do get used to it, but I remember the first time I went to see the London Marathon, I could not, it blew my mind how quickly the leaders came by. I mean, it was like they were sprinting and, but like controlled, you know, like this power, it almost like blew you sideways. It was, it was amazing. And I did actually one year when I was at university. So I wasn't, I actually, I did run for the university team, but I was, I was like really slow. I wasn't training. I was training like once a week and the rest of them were like really serious, but I did go and watch, they had an outing to watch the world cross country championships which were on in the UK that year. And I remember it was this guy, Ishmael Karui, this Kenyan guy won. Well, he maybe came second, but I, he was like my favorite runner. And that when they came by, it was, it was just the force and the power of, of that, of them going by. And you know, they're quite small, slight people, but the force, I mean, I remember in Kenya as well with the national cross country championships there when Jeffrey Mutai won that year and he came past me near the finish and he was on his sprint finish but he was he just looks like comfortable but almost knocks you sideways the yeah. the force of their energy as they go by it's, it's something they're else. super so, they're super efficient right they come across yeah. super efficient like when you look at yeah. westerners running they're like they're like flailing <laughs> <laughs> like yeah yeah it's like this look of pain on their face yeah. <laughs> yeah i mean these guys are going when you think of like the cross country they're probably running close to four minute mile pace on cross country but looking not looking like someone's running a formula mile where they're like giving it everything but like composed uh, and then even in the marathon they're running like 445 pace but like you know talking to each other you know i mean i mean we we work in miles in the uk but that's you know that's it's pretty pretty yeah. <laughs> it's pretty fast so it's, i'd struggled i couldn't run a mile that fast and, and that's their marathon pace but it's the way they do it so casually. And, and so it's kind of disarming because they're coming down the road looking like they're jogging, but then they go by like that. You're like, Whoa, <laughs> what was that? Uh, so anyway, so I went to the London Marathon, watched that. Uh, and I remember thinking, I, and I thought I was just going down to watch the leaders go by, but I ended up watching all the people come by, you know, and the guys that 
I guess two and a half hours and three hours, three and a half hours. And there were just so it was really moving for a start. And then there were so many people of all shapes and sizes and ages. And and I just thought, well, God, you know, I'm a runner. Yeah, I, I'm not, I'm standing here watching. Surely I should, you know, I should get out there and 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 do this. And then I kind of realized I'm 35. I, you know, I need to do it soon if I'm going to do it because, you know, in my head, I'm a serious runner. And so let me let me ask you a question. You talked about running clubs and I know that running clubs could be a great way for people that are serious runners or starting off and they're looking for environmental support to help them, you know, create the disciplines and behaviors to run. Well, now you, uh, throughout your books, talk about running clubs. I just, I'm interested in knowing your relationship to running in the sense that do you enjoy it more is an individual pursuit or do you like the social element of it? Because I'm not yet, I don't yet know if you're an introvert or an extrovert and I'm trying to understand, well, do you actually prefer it as a solo endeavor or do you kind of like that with the backdrop of then the club and the social scene? Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's an interesting one. I mean, I spoke to the ultra runner Zach Miller and he said he's a, he's an introvert, extrovert or something, something like that. I feel I'm, kind of the same I like I, I do like people and I, what I like about I, I just love running in a group I love running in a group rather than like it's not like I rarely socialize after the sessions with the running club mm. uh, it's not like and I you know they often you know they have social events and to be honest I rarely go to those and I feel like no offense to any of my running club buddies because they're all brilliant but like the people I kind of socialize with aren't really the running club buddies but i do and i and i love running on my own as well i love you know i I definitely would need a couple of runs a week where i can just go off and let the mind wander let the thoughts drift you know go at my own pace uh sometimes i like to really push it hard and 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 obviously in a running club they do that sometimes but it's a kind of different different thing i like to just kind of build it up slowly and and then slow down when I want as well, you know, and even stop sometimes. And just, I, so, so I do enjoy being on my own. I enjoy the, the thoughts of just letting the thoughts drift and, and having ideas. But I do love that feeling of being in a group, running, the, that, that sense of almost being like part of a, a, gr- a band of warriors or something. You know, you're kind of moving at speed and you can almost, the movement of the other people seems mm. to lift you and give you mm. this energy and, and it seems easier to run in the group. And then someone makes a move and you spot them and you kind of move with them or you decide, I'm feeling good, I'm going to lead the group or yeah. that guy's really going for it, let's let's chase him down. And there's all those kind of dynamics, which I I don't know if I sometimes think, am I just kind of fantasizing that I'm an elite runner or something? Or, But I think, I don't think it is that. I think it's something more kind of primal. There's, that, there's an experience of being, everyone running along mm. in a group, feeling kind of, I mean, you know, I'm, it's a local level i'm a long way from being an elite runner but we are like this within our club with a serious group and we're you know we're kind of moving at a decent pace and i maybe, just i just love that i love maybe, that feeling maybe it's taking us back to our hunter days yeah. you know when we were running as packs it's, after it's food. i mean it might be sure. primal i think so i mean i think there's something in that there's something it's hard to be you know it's just a sense but there is a sense that 
it feels it feels good it feels like yeah I do get that sense like I, I tell you what it's quite often it's kind of weird thing I find so I often run where I live is quite a busy place in the summer or holidays and when I'm running on my own through some of the more areas where my club run on my own I feel like I feel a bit kind of I've got to avoid people I like I'm every every little thing like a car coming the other way or I better go this way uh everything feels like things to uh negotiate and be a bit careful with but when I'm with the running club I, it's weird I don't even notice those things it's like we just run through everything yeah and like the cars stop yeah people step out of the way and yeah. we just run and it's like there's a real sense of freedom in that we just kind of just for a split second we take over we're not you know we're runners are not you know we're not like a threatening group we're not like hell's angels or something <laughs> you're the one the percenter wrong. you're the one percenter yeah. in the running community I, I don't want to give the wrong impression but there is a somehow a kind of freedom of the group moving through through an area and just like even things like curbs and you know you run across the grass you run across the road i don't know i just i get a real thrill from it so yeah I was excited because we didn't have running clubs for quite a few months and they've just started up again and yeah I'm excited to go back and be back with the group but yes yeah, it's, it's it's a it's a collective thing it's a being with other people but it's not it's not like a social thing in a way although we chat you know they're nice people and we chat and we talk but yeah we don't we don't see each other that often outside of the running what what I struggle with with running groups I think is we have a very good running group here uh, where I live in Australia, uh, made up of ultra runners and road runners. What I find with running groups is I get caught up in other people's pace when I'm training for a race yeah. and I'll, and we kind of all the guys, we get caught up in this egocentric battle and I might have running sessions I've got to make for the rest of the week. And then I just root myself you know what I mean? And so I, I struggle with that. I think I'm, I kind of also have this rebellious streak. I notice, like when the running group does things, I'm like, I'm not going to that. I'm, this is all internally happening. Cause I'm like rebellious. I'm going to do my own thing, which is, that's weird. Um, but it's, it's just thoughts that I have, but I find that running groups are really, really a good way of creating community I've also started to get my little ones into running. I've got a four-year-old who they, I, I run ultras. I don't run road. Um, mm. I sometimes I do, but uh, the, as you know, the ultra community is pretty good with engaging yeah. kids and it, there's yeah. a real community there. And um, so I've got my little one running them and I'm going to probably take him into the local running community that will then get me more involved. But I have a very, interesting uh relationship with the running community because of usually when i'm training i'm training for something and i find that when i do run with the running groups i try to keep up with the fastest runners you know yeah yeah that, that i know that exactly and i remember watching the first time i watched the kenyans train they did it was in london I, and they were doing a track session and it was really interesting because they there were three of them and they took turns leading each session each each lap i think they were doing 400s and they would just stick together. So they were going, they weren't like, and then they weren't coming down because I know what you mean. You come down the home straight and, and my running club as well, everyone's racing each other. 
and I thought this is great because that that I don't like that bit of the of the when it starts becoming like every every interval is like a race, and so I've learned to be like the Kenyans a bit. And I I, I you know if I was the coach, I would definitely be one of the things I would say is like take turns leading you know and, and just let that person lead and if it's a bit slow for you then you've got a bit more energy on the next one but just you know there's a kind of cohesion there which i really love the way the kenyans train let's talk about that because you fast forward you become a a writer for the financial times right and you reconnect with your passion for running and you decide to go to iten in kenya to live and train with Kenyans. And let's unpack that story. Now, I will say that the Kenyans kind of remind me of the Brazilians in soccer, the way that yeah. you yeah. explain the way they engage with running this real, and even in your book, it's like, <laughs> I love when you impersonate Kenyans because it's like, they're just like, huh? like, hey. yeah. <laughs> like it's real, like whatever. <laughs> and then they explode. It's that I, I remember the story in the book, the that girl that was training with you guys that kind of never did well. And then at the last race, she just blitzed it. Right. You're like thinking the whole book, she's going to fall apart. Yeah. But she had this real laid back, whether they win, whether they lose. Yeah. And so um, what I found really interesting about just from a high level perspective with the Kenyans is you don't see that typical intensity, that overt in, in intensity that one assumes exists within every athlete. And probably yeah. when you juxtapose that with the Japanese, you get a, a really good sense. Yeah. So can we talk about your decision to go down to Kenya? How did that all unfold? Yeah, I mean, interesting you bring up the Brazilians. I remember reading a story which really resonated with the Kenyans where it was a it was a Brazilian soccer player in, in the US. And he saw, a, he saw a US kid with a t-shirt that said, no easy days. And he was like, what does that mean? Yeah. <laughs> because like, we're, football, we're just playing football. Every day is easy, right? And like, no, 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 you've got to train hard. And it's like the Japanese mentality and to, men, to a slightly less extent, the Western mentality is, you know, you've got you to work hard. You've got to train hard. You've got to... And it's not like the Kenyans don't train hard, but they have a, there's a brilliant quote by Jeffrey Camelwall, who's the, it was the half marathon world record holder, three-time half marathon world champion, three-time world cross country champion. I love it. He just said, he just says, uh, his motto is train hard, but not every day. <laughs> Which, you know, is not what you're expecting from an elite athlete. You're expecting them to say, you know, 110%, put all the effort in, but they're, They've got a real sense of when when to train hard and when to respect their bodies and when to be pulled back and take it easy and and they understand the the kind of the way the body works and it, it's a kind of to and throw it's like a dance a yin and yang of pushing and, and relaxing pushing and relaxing it's not push 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 the whole time because that way you break down. Do, anyway, do come back just on that just just on that. Do you think that? because of the lack of mechanization and industrialization there in Kenya, like they're still more in sync with their body. And like, there's more connectivity to their different parts versus us in the West where we have kind of become mechanized 
in everything we do? Yeah, I mean, it, it, you know, it's tricky to generalize, but I think there's a, there's a great Kenyan coach who, who trains some of the best Kenyans. And he says, the Westerners have the watches, the Kenyans have the time. <laughs> so mm. it's like, you know, I, I don't, you know, and he's just like, there's that, there's that sense. There's also a sense that they, they kind of have to be more in tune with their bodies because they don't have the medical backup, the medical facilities. So brother Colin was telling me this, like, you know, the physios are hard to come by. So, you know, you don't, you don't push it. When you feel a niggle, you ease off because it's, it, you know, you've got to go up to that line, but you don't cross that line where someone else will, will in the West will cross that line. Then there's things like schedules, for example. So like, you know, Western runners love having a schedule and they, you know, they feel bad if they don't stick to it. Where Kenyans have very loose schedules, you know, it's just like Hills Monday, you know, Fartlek Tuesday, Easy Wednesday, you know, and so, and they'll play with that. If they're not feeling good, you're often, you know, there'll be some guy, so I'd go out on the runs with the Kenyans and there'd be some guy going at my pace and I'd say, you know, because I, although I'm quite quick for my running club, I'm very slow by Kenyan standards. And so I'd be like, what's wrong why are you running at this pace and he's like oh you know i just didn't i feel a bit tired today you know it's just and there's a real difference because they're not being lazy it's not like they've got up and they just feel a bit lazy they've got a real sense because you can't be lazy in in kenya and become an athlete because this competition is so fierce you know the, the standards are so high but they they just have this sense of when to ease back and they're not afraid to either they're not they're not thinking oh this is a bad thing to do this is a weakness they don't see easing easing back taking it slow being at the back of the group as a weakness i mean i've i've watched eli kipchoge training in his group and if you didn't know who he was you wouldn't know he's like the guy who's around sub two hour marathon and because he's just in the group he's, he doesn't lead the intervals he might lead one or two when the coach tells him to he's just running in the group with everyone else and there's so unlike we were talking about you were talking earlier about the ego gets involved when you're training with your group doesn't seem to happen there with the kenyans they seem to be able to save all that for the race they seem quite happy just you know being part of that group there's a real cohesion within the group well, they're community driven right which is yeah, interesting yeah. so like you're talking about a community driven environment and what's interesting is they're involved in a highly, well, a perceived highly competitive sport, but the way that we see or you see it unfold doesn't look so, is what you're yeah. saying, which is interesting, yeah, yeah. right? And it's, and it's fascinating because there is no, like, there is no funding really for these Kenyan runners. There is no, you know, there's no body supporting them. There's no, like in this country, we have the National Lottery supports, you know, talented athletes uh like in japan they have the company teams which are paying the athletes they, they don't have anything like that so how it's supported is the successful athletes are supporting what they call the up-and-coming athletes so it doesn't doesn't matter how old you are if you're not quite made it yet you could be 30 but you're still could be still an up-and-coming athlete but the up-and-coming athletes are supported by the successful athletes and uh and and that's just how it works. i mean there are managers there who will provide kit and funding but basically it's the athletes themselves who provide the the nurturing environment for these for these athletes uh, and there was a whole study in japan actually because they have some of the kenyan athletes in japan mm -hmm. and they uh, <clears throat> they realized there was a there was, they were studying the financial situation with the runners 
somebody was for a university study. And he realized that the Kenyans were sending all their earnings back to Kenya and often to other people. And they thought, well, that's really silly because they've got a very short career. They need to be thinking about the future. They shouldn't be giving their money away. And so they tried to educate them about, you know, the, the fact that this money, they needed to save it, invest it. But what they didn't realize is that this is how the Kenyan running system works. The money is, I mean, of course, they're not giving it all away. They're still buying themselves a nice car, nice house for the family. But some of those guys are winning such big money, you know, by Kenyan standards. So they've got, they, they, there is a sense that they pay like the neighbors school fees, their, their nieces and nephews school fees. Some of them build schools, hospitals. And then they also have this training group of, of like they say, the up and coming athletes who they're helping out. Uh, so yeah, so it's a real cohesion, a real group that the Kenyan motto is Harambe and there's a real sense of Harambe there, which means Harambe means all pull together, which is the, the motto of the country. And there's a real feeling that that's how, without that, it, the whole thing would come falling down. And, and that's why it's quite a problem at the moment because nobody's racing. So nobody's bringing back money into that community. So nobody's supporting those struggling athletes. So a lot of those struggling athletes are giving up the sport. And Kenyan, another thing that funnel, kind of supports the Kenyan system is the fact there's so many people pushing and trying and working together to become successful that the ones that come out at the top are just, are just brilliant. But, you know, you've got for every... I mean, there's it just in a 10 itself, there's at least two or 3,000 athletes living like full-time athletes. And there are other areas, you know, there's probably 10,000 full-time athletes in Kenya, uh, but only maybe 500 of those are actually winning races abroad and earning money. So that without that kind of sheer numbers of, of athletes, mm -hmm. the whole thing is potentially could, could crumble. It's a very delicate system, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. So, so you get down to... Kenya, you have family in tow, which is fascinating throughout all your books, your family's there. And I think yeah, it's a wonderful experience for your children. And you set up shop in Iten, correct? Yeah. And can you explain to the audience the, the relevance of that city? Because not everyone knows. Yeah. Yeah. So I've kind of uh, gone off on about 10 different tangents, haven't I? I haven't really explained how I ended up in Kenya, no, no, but yeah, I'll try and recap very briefly so I yeah I had this idea to write write the book I was already a journalist by that point so I was I was kind of marrying my two loves of well my job with with my by by then I got back into running by 35 then after that London Marathon I started running races locally started training joined a running club took it a bit more seriously uh, I actually won a couple of races before I went to Kenya so I was kind of feeling pretty good about it all uh and, and yeah, I sold this idea to write a book about what's going on in Kenya. And, and when I started researching it, this town, Iten, just kind of is like a, a flashing beacon on the map. It's like, and, it, and as you drive into the town, it's a small town, about 40,000 inhabitants. Uh, you drive into the town, there's a sign over the road that says, welcome to the home of champions. Mm. And it's, you know, it, it it's, it's almost like you couldn't go for three runs there without pretty much running next to or beside or across at least two or three Olympic champions, world record holders. I mean, everybody gets introduced by their, their numbers. It's, it's quite interesting. So, you know, I, you meet a guy and everyone's like, oh, this is so-and-so 59, 24, you know, this guy 204, 
you know, and the numbers are, are pretty, pretty incredible. And you know, you know, you know, two or four, well, that's a marathon, 59, that's a <laughs> half marathon. Uh, and it's just the whole town is living and breathing running. And anyone who's not running is somehow, you know, they're cooking for the athletes or there's, there's quite a few sports shops in the town now. And, and there's hotels and partly since my book, really, I mean, I seem to have been quite responsible for more and more Westerners going there to kind of re sit, you know, having read my book, they say, well, it's possible to go there. It's possible to see, you know, go there for and, and train. So there's more and more Westerners there. And some of them done very well. The, there's the New Zealand, the two New Zealand twins, uh, Jake and Zane Robertson. They were actually there before me, actually. <clears throat> but uh, but I, then I met Julian Wonders a couple of years ago in Iten. So he's, I think he ran the European record at the 10K and a half or, or something like that. He's run some pretty stellar times. Uh, he often, you often see him running at the front with the Kenyans in some of these big world championship races and stuff. Uh, he's from Switzerland. But he told me he partly came out there because he read my book, you know, even even people yeah. like that. So so, there, so so there's a whole kind of tourism industry building up there now as a result of that. So but it's a it's a special place there. You can go. So the, the famous session is every Thursday morning. So there are all these separate running camps within the town and then kind of other athletes who just kind of gravitate towards the 10 from all over the country because they've heard about it. And they know there's opportunity there. There are managers there. There are groups there. There are all these champion athletes there. So they kind of all gravitate to this town. And most of the week, there's lots of separate groups. But then on a Thursday, it's like the whole town comes together for a fartlek session. And it is in, it's insane. There's like 200 Kenyans <laughs> gathering for like a 25-1-1, which means to 20, you know, 25, one minute fast, one minute easy, one minute fast. Right. And you can just go down and join in and see, you know, can you last for two, three, you know, maybe depends how good you are. And uh, yeah, it's, it's quite a sight. I mean, the photos of that, if you've ever seen it on YouTube, there's some, there's a brilliant drone footage of it as they're running up this. It's all a beautiful part of the country as well. It's very fertile. It's high altitude. So it's not too hot. It's not like they're running in the baking sun. Uh, and and the grass is very green and the, the mud, there are all these mud roads, which is very red mud roads. So it's very picturesque mud huts, but really beautiful, you know, homesteads and, you know, lots of fresh vegetables, fresh fruit. And so it's a real perfect place to train. And 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 so everyone gravitates there. And they it's 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 like I say, there's at least 2000 full time athletes there on a, a normal circumstance. What, what are the things that you learn in Kenya about the way they train, their relationship to running, diet, lifestyle, that really, really surprised you? Yeah, so, but I guess Versus the, third, the conventional, what we think to be the conventional yeah. wisdom, right? I guess there's quite a few things. I mean, first of all, I, I had read Born to Run. Uh, yeah and had become completely sold on this idea of barefoot running. Mm. And, and part of the idea was then Daniel Lieberman had come up with the whole theory from watching Kenyan runners. And so I'd gone there fully expecting to see at least half the Kenyans running barefoot and none of them were barefoot. And so that, that kind of slightly confused me initially. <laughs> <laughs> 
I love um, your, you know, I love your journey with the barefoot running. That was another, yeah. that was another uh, piece done really well with uh, your, your classic British humor. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I got accused probably someone who didn't, I, I felt I didn't read the book properly. Uh, some Amazon review said, you, this guy didn't go to Kenya because he said all the runners run barefoot and they don't. I'm like, the first thing I said when I got there is like, where are all the barefoot runners? That's what I said. Nobody's running barefoot. So I don't think the guy, didn't, me, bro. Yeah, <laughs> the guy didn't know how to read the book. I didn't know how to read full stop. Yeah, right. <laughs> but so that surprised me. Although then I had this big revelation when I went to the watch the junior races and all the kids are barefoot, every one of them, uh, except each race is one or two of the kids who are not barefoot and they always come at the back, which was like, Wow, that's really interesting. And then a couple. Then when I talked to some of the athletes about that, there was one guy who told me he was quite a good runner at school, and his parents were a bit wealthier than most of the kids, so they bought him some running shoes. And then he started doing worse in the races, so he got rid of them and he went barefoot again. So they all grow up running barefoot, and I think that's that's the key because they learn how to run in that style. They learn how to connect with the ground. They learn you know how to how to land not on the heel but in the you know perfectly so so that was kind of a a lesson and and a surprise another thing and i guess i hadn't really this was a this was a good thing but i kind of went out there like kind of naively thinking i'm going to run with the kenyans but there was a point in which i asked what's the what would be the slowest kenyan runner in iten to this Kenyan guy and he said well I was talking the juniors as well and I was like yeah okay I could run with the juniors he said well like, junior girls I'm like okay okay yeah why not what's the slowest junior girl 10k runner and he's like oh 32 minutes <laughs> so so my best time at the time even though I'd won a race locally was 38 minutes so uh so I guess there was a slight fear about how this was all going to work and what I found is that they they when they go easy runs they, i love the way they say easy so today's easy <laughs> easy this is like oh yeah and you, your heart goes ah oh, easy i'm i'm okay and they will run so slow i mean even for me it felt slow you know just and you can be with you know i've run with ellie kipchoge you run with you know these guys who've broken world records when they go easy they go easy i mean you know I, i'm in minutes per mile but it's it's like nine ten minutes per yep. mile i mean it's it's a proper jog, even for, you know, an amateur runner. It's, it's super easy. So that was a, a nice surprise. I could, I could go and run with them. I guess another thing which was a nice surprise was I, I, get, I went there wondering how I was going to find these runners. You know, was, I had this vision of like knocking on the, cause I heard they lived in running camps. So I had this vision of knocking on the running camp and the window opening and no go away, you know, and, like oh but I, i'd like to meet some of the runners and instead what happens you just put on your shoes go out at 6 a.m and before you know it especially as a, as a white guy in kenya within five minutes someone's Ooh. come over and said oh you, you want to run come around with us next thing you're in a group with well i was got in the group with wilson kipsang who at the time was just an up-and-coming runner but he'd already run 59 minutes for half marathon but ended up breaking the world record uh, for the marathon and you know, coming, I think he was third in the second in the Olympics, I think. But uh, yeah, so I just got swept up by his group. And, you know, you just and that that would happen to anyone, anyone 
you know, and so what I, what was super uh, and surprising and lovely was just how welcoming they were. And you, if you were running anywhere, you're running on your own and a group would come by, they just, they just give you this hand signal, come, come, join us, join us. And like, even if they're going too fast, they'll slow down for you. They're just, they're just so inclusive and so, like, you know, welcoming, which was just amazing, really. So I just want to ask you um, about their diet. You know, in the Western world, we have all these wonderful gels and all this stuff we shove into our mouth when we're running. And mm. I would <clears throat> assume diet in Kenya would be pretty simple. Now you've talked about, I forget the name of that food that they always eat after yeah. a run, but they are world champions. And admittedly, uh, you know, from what I would think to be the reality there, the diet would be pretty basic and simple. Am I right in assuming that? Like we, because the yeah. implication of that is we don't need all these weird and wonderful kind of supplements. Yeah. Yeah. They, so they, yeah, there'd be no supplements at all there. They, they occasionally, so it's a bit like the shoes, like they put the shoes on in some weird way, emulating the, the you know, the kind of developed world. Mm -hmm. So they, they want to feel like successful and, and wealthy when they become good at running. So you do find some of the more successful athletes, they start asking people when they come back from Europe to bring them the supplements. And it's usually just vitamins or <clears throat> protein drinks. But generally, they're very, very rare on the ground. And no up-and-coming athlete would have ever seen this stuff. And, <clears throat> and these are the guys who are making these massive breakthroughs. And so it's clearly not, not important. So... Yeah, the diet is is amazingly simple. I mean, I quite, I, you know, quite, I thought it was quite funny, but there was one running camp where they had the menu, the week's menu on the wall in the kitchen. And it was completely pointless because every day was same the same. Thing. I thought I'd written it down Monday, Tuesday, <laughs> the same thing. And it was, it was lunch was uh, beans and rice. That was it. And there would be some potatoes, maybe some carrots. Uh, this was quite a, uh, a kind of low-level running camp. So the, the, the top-level camps would be this, exactly the same, so they might have a bit of avocado on the side, perhaps. <clears throat> and then the evening meal would be ugali. So this is this ma ma maize, just maize and water, basically. And then uh, basically stewed kale, uh, which they would have with it. And they, they kind of scoop up the kale with the, the ugali. And then they would probably have a cup of hot milk uh, in the evening as well. It's not a lot. Are, are they hungry a lot? Were the you, runners you know what, hungry? It's, it's so weird. I, I, so most of the time, because I was with my family, I stayed with yeah. my family. But to get the full experience, I spent six weeks. They went off to my sister-in-law. I spent six weeks in one of the running camps. And I was starving the whole time. I mean, I, I had to smuggle in my own jars of peanut butter, which I would hide under the bed. Because I was a bit embarrassed to be eating, because I wasn't running as much as they were. Because I would, you know, I would skip every run every You're eating 10 like, times is more. <laughs> and I was eating more. And I'd say, how are they surviving, really? Often they wouldn't eat breakfast at all. Or if That's they would, weird. it would be a couple of slices of dry bread. But I remember going with the group. The guy actually ended up winning the London Olympics. Went for the long run with him one day. Uh, and the guy won the London Marathon that year I was there. We were in the same group. And we got up at like 4.30. Everyone just probably just some water is all they drank. Then we went around 40K. I, I did, I think I did 15. They did 40K. Then they came back to the camp 
So I, by then it was like 10, 11 o'clock. And then 40K, like just over, like it was about two hours, 10 on, on, on rolling hills at altitude. I mean, the guy two weeks later broke the record in the London Marathon. So he was definitely on form. But uh, they got back to the running camp and they just had a cup of tea. That was it. With, with lots of milk and sugar. And then I was like, I was, I'd done 15K, but I was starving. I was like, when are we going to eat? <laughs> so let me, and they were like, let me, let me ask you though. Like, cause I mean, I, I see that in the ultra community, like the elite runners have a different relationship to nutrition. I ran an ultra on the weekend. It was a sky run. So it was about four, uh, almost 5,000 meter elevation, which in Australia, that's high. We don't have the European um, kind of landscape that you guys have, but the elite runners, the Hawker sponsored runners, they, their nutrition was very different. Like I'm eating rice bowls, you know, like I'm out there, I have to eat food and these dudes are blitzing it like maybe on a gel or two. And I'm like, well, maybe your body just morphs. Although they're, they're also probably, they're probably out there a lot for a lot shorter amount of time than you though as well, aren't they? So they're well, they not- were, the winner finished in, not eight and a half hours i was out there like 11 hours 20 minutes yeah so not a huge difference but maybe enough to worry. yeah but yeah you're right i'm like yeah it's it's bizarre yeah and i think yeah i mean a lot of those athletes have, have kind of experimented with 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 their food and they've got nutritionists and maybe you know they're all about performance where you might be thinking more about your long-term health and you know, maybe think all oh, these gels are not not that good for me. I don't know. You know, I, I want to eat real food. But I mean, the Kenyans are definitely. You know, they, obviously they're only running up to marathon distance uh, so far. Uh, so, that, so food is it's different than in ultra running. And ultra running, you you know, you you kind of <clears throat> food is a different is a, is much more much bigger part of the game in in a way. But the marathon run, I don't you know I don't feel like they're purposefully not eating much it's not like they're trying to starve no, themselves no. Their weight down. No. it's just what they're used to you know they, they this is what they've eaten their whole lives it's what their bodies are used to it's what you know they they, they it's almost like I mean you like Elliot Kipchoge you know he's he's I don't know he's worth you know millions of dollars he lives in this simple training camp he'll just have the same beans and rice and ugali and sukumu wiki like the kale for 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 dinner and and that's it he'll go to bed he'll sleep on a very thin mattress with no pillow mm-hmm. in a shared room and he'll get up at five o'clock in the morning ready for training he, he'll shower with a bucket of cold water it's like there's this kind of simple simplicity stripped down simplicity to it which to be to be honest not all the successful kenyans do that uh and i think part of his success and the reason he's had such a long career is because he's he's one of the ones who's kind of maintained that discipline <clears throat> a lot of them like kipsang was one kipsang built a hotel in iten and then that's when things started going wrong because then he was he was a businessman as well as trying to be an athlete and then he was trying to keep everything running and then he was supporting a lot of people so he had a lot of people asking him for stuff. Whereas Elliot has just kept, he's just like one of the guys. He's not the leader. He's just in the gang. <coughs> and I think that's that's why his career has been so successful for so long. And being a boxer, right? Like we had a boxer from the UK on the other day. And, mm. you know, he, um, 
he went there and I think he's got amnesty as a refugee and he's boxing and he's just got such a passion for boxing. And part of it is he's trying to get his citizenship and his family over from Ghana. And we were talking about like, you got to stay hungry. And I guess if you create too comfortable of an environment, you lose that edge, yeah. right? You lose that edge. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. And and there's some of them are aware of that. And some of them are obviously attracted to the, the comfort and the luxury. Yeah, like, if, like, like any young sportsman. It's fair know. enough as well. When you're coming come coming from kind of I guess poverty to some degree. Yeah. Yeah. So another thing I know that you said they do is they don't actually like to run on road. Yeah. Right. They pretty much run on trail. Yeah. Yeah. Almost. Almost entirely. They do the occasional, like mm -hmm. maybe before a big marathon, they might do a, a session on, on the tarmac. Uh, but yeah, they, 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 when I was there, they used to say, you know, if it was raining, for example, uh, then the, the mud, mud roads would get, you know, a bit difficult to run on. So they would say, oh, we're not training tomorrow or we'll, we'll train in the afternoon, right? Because, <clears throat> and I often turn up at the track and it was, couldn't train, but it's this thing, they've got time. So, they would just sit there and wait for the track to dry. You know, you might sit there for three hours. Just, it's not, is it ready? They go and check it out. No, not yet. Sit down again, you know, have another banana. Just wait, you know. So, but I would say like, well, we could just run on the road. And they're like, oh, then they used to say to me, only the Mzungu run on the road, which is the, the white the white guy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. And that, that seems to be, they, they just, they don't like the impact they, they like the trails at least you know and 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 all the you know all the research backs it up that running on a trail you know, it's softer so it's less impact <clears throat> less likely to get injured but also you're working your body in all different directions your foot landing is being worked and you know it's just got lots of benefits and uh, <clears throat> i don't know why they just instinctively seem to know that whereas like japan which you know mm -hmm we get onto is uh is almost the opposite whereas everything has to be done on the concrete because they're worried they might trip over a stone or something so Let, let's talk about japan because <laughs> japan is such an interesting contrast to kenya and you know i've always been fascinated with japan because of their craftsmanship and their dedication to form and that consistency um an absolute uh work ethic they have but in many ways, it seems in your book to unveil that a lot of that actually hinders their running. So what took you to Japan um, and what? Yeah, let's let's move into that piece. Yeah. OK, so, I mean, I'd written the book about Kenyans and it done very well. And I was I was they wanted me to write another book about running and many years many years before my brother had lived in Japan and, and I witnessed this thing called an Ekiden, which I hadn't really, it was in that period where I really wasn't running. And so we'd been out quite late at night and he mm. said, you want to run a race in the morning? And I was just like, I, oh, you know, really don't feel like it. So I went and watched, but it was amazing because the whole town came out and it's a, like a long distance relay race. <clears throat> and he ran with the town where he lived. He said he had to run, you know, it was, it was, you know, he, he was signed up and he had to be there. Uh, and so I got interested about that, started digging around. And so it turns out that these Ekiden relay races, these long distance relay races <clears throat> are huge in Japan. I mean, in fact, the biggest sporting event of the year is the Hakone Ekiden, 
of all sports. I mean, it's like the whole country comes to a standstill for this 215 kilometer uh, relay race from center of Tokyo to the foot of Mount Fuji and back again. Uh, and it happens the 2nd and 3rd of January every year. And it's, <clears throat> you know, any Japanese person you say, you know, Hakone Ekiden, oh, Hakone Ekiden. You know, it's like a, something they remember from childhood where their whole family would sit down and watch his running race, which is quite bizarre. Uh, and then there's also the other interesting thing in Japan is all these corporate teams. So they're like fully professional teams. Whereas <clears throat> if you think about it, runners everywhere else in the world, they run, they run for a sponsor. So they get money from their sponsor and then they run, maybe get appearance money if they're big enough and, and then they're running for prize money. So, but there's no like regular salary. You've got to kind of, you know, get injured and everything goes to pot. Whereas these guys are like, well, I, I guess, well, in England, the, the obvious thing is, is the soccer players, you know, and the football teams. They, they get paid to join a team. They get paid to be part of that team and they get a salary. And if they spend the year not getting in the team, they still get paid. It's not like, it's not, I mean, there's performance related in that you move on, your value goes up. So it's very similar to that, but it means there's about 2,000 fully paid full-time professional athletes in Japan, which I don't know what it, what the figures would be in Australia, but I imagine quite similar to the UK where you've got barely a handful of athletes who can fully just be full-time athletes. And even those guys are relying on sponsorship and perhaps a bit of government funding. And you know, they're not getting paid a salary by a company to be a runner. This is uh, it's quite an unusual setup. So it gives them quite a professional advantage, uh, you know, and so they're starting, you know, they're producing some pretty impressive times <clears throat> i mean their sport is one of the most popular sports so so these guys even at a young age so the college events are almost the biggest events so these kids at a young age are, are like superstars in japan the, the really good ones you know they're like they have I, I witnessed it you know 19 year old runners college runners you know they're like i i mean i don't know who the equivalent in australia would be with david beckham in, in yeah England, you know? yeah people swooning like girls <clears throat> their feet are queuing up for autographs you know and they're slightly you know awkward yeah. teenage but they're superstars you know like the, the the hakone like the top hakone runners and so there's a lot of incentive behind that to be good at running <clears throat> a lot of drive and like you say the japanese when they put their mind to anything they do it they don't half do it they do it you know fully they put everything into mm -hmm. it and so <clears throat> they're really about the process, right? And not what they yeah. feel like doing. And that's a real contrast to the Kenyans, I yeah. would say, correct? Yeah, yeah, really completely. And uh, <clears throat> yeah, so they, yeah, a lot of it is almost about how you do it is, is as important as uh, where you finish in a way. And there's this whole, there's this whole kind of show in a way. It's, it's almost become part of the sport but when they finish the race they make this incredible show of how much effort they put in <laughs> so they're like collapse onto the floor and they they actually have gas and air at the finish of the races for for the runners to because they're you know they can't breathe so <clears throat> and, so dramatic. And, and it's quite interesting because japan generally is not a place where emotions are you know worn on the outside mm -hmm. but for some reason they really have to show the effort they put in. The effort is more important than the result. If you if you win, like a Kenyan will win looking easy. And that's, you know, the easier you can look, the better in a way. And, and I think sometimes the Kenyans, 
and that, that's a that's a long other story but they they they're trying not to show uh that they're struggling it's it comes a lot of it comes back to the male initiation ceremonies in the Kalenjin tribal communities but they're not it's not kind of looked on as a positive thing to show that you're struggling but in Japan <clears throat> because effort is so valued yeah they make this huge show of of how hard they're trying and and that's that's kind of part of it <clears throat> but what's quite interesting in Japan and with running I think is that in some ways running is counterintuitive because you've got to protect that body and and in many things in life the more you work at it the harder you work at it the more dedicated you are the better it's going to be and you know mm. practice makes perfect and <clears throat> but somehow with running mm. that doesn't always work you know mm. with running you've got to you've got to know when to slow down and so the japanese have this problem is that because it's all about effort if you're not doing very well you need to try harder you need you're not trying hard enough you've got to push harder you've got to work harder and so they get to this point where they're exhausted really they need a rest but they think they're not training hard enough so they'll do extra runs and extra runs <clears throat> and i mean my whole book kind of pivoted on this moment i remember it really clearly because i ended up finding a kenyan so a lot of these professional japanese teams will hire kenyans and ethiopians uh a bit like English soccer teams will hire Brazilians and Argentinian footballers to, you know, boost the team. There are quite strict rules on how many they can have and, and what legs they can run in the relays. <clears throat> but they, I managed to meet up with one of these Kenyans running for uh, an Ekiden team. And, and he was just so fascinating. And, and my, my whole book kind of pivoted on this moment where he said, running in Japan is so respected. It's so professional. It's so way more than Kenya. I mean, he said the, the effort they put in, the, the time, the support, the fan support, the, it's just incredible. And he said, you know, if the Japanese train like the Kenyans, they break all the world records. And I was like, wow, that's really, that's quite a statement, but if they train like the Kenyans, so what, what's wrong with the training? What, what do you mean by that? And he said, they train too hard. That was, his thing. well, he had two things. One, he said, no forest. And what he meant is, by that was they train all on the concrete. So they, they were doing it all on the tarmac. So they need to get off onto the trails. And the second thing is they train too hard. And that's like such a, really such an insightful thing to say, but also just shows you with running that with running, it's, it's, you can't just push that. You can't just hammer that nail in the way that you can in other sports and, and, and other, other things in life, you know, and perhaps in some ways you, there's a lesson in everything in that, and that you can only push so far in everything. And, you know, you get all these stories and in Japan is famous for this, you know, even in the corporate world, you know, high suicide rates because people just push themselves to the limit and they don't know when to pull back and it's shameful to pull back. And what's interesting in Kenya, like, for example, they, <clears throat> the dropout rates in races is, is ridiculously high. You know, the Kenyans have got no shame about pulling out of a race even where, you know, in the West and in Japan, that's a kind of shameful thing to do. You've got to keep yeah. pushing. You've got to keep trying. You've yeah. got to keep, you know, yeah. on at it. And, yeah. Yeah. And it's almost like Japan takes that, like we have that idea as well in the West, but in, in Japan, they take it to more of an extreme. And, and then they also have this thing with the coaches so in Japan, the coaches are very disciplinarian and they're very uh, authoritarian and you can't question the coach. And, and they, well, there's a whole traditional <clears throat> Japanese way, which is hard work, double hard work. And it's not just in running, it's in all sorts of elements of Japanese life. Uh, 
but yeah, so that that was a big kind of melting pot of of contrast and 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 just an and really fascinating world of running. So I ended what, up. What I well. find interesting though about Japanese culture is they also have a propensity for optimization. You know, you look at a lot of their firms. You know, Toyota, they are cutting edge in because the 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 the, the picture that's presented with the way of the runner is that the Japanese downfall in running is that it's a work harder, not smarter mentality, which is interesting because if you look at their business environment, they are into optimization and finding better ways to do things. And I think that if they can kind of bring some of that broader uh, philosophy into running, they'll probably do better. And I think what's very telling about the running piece in Japan is that runner, I can't remember his name, but I actually was in a marathon that he won in Australia, the Japanese runner who stayed out of the corporate system and stayed a teacher and was denying sponsorships. I think he's been recently sponsored by ASICS. Yeah. Yeah. But he was like a total badass, right? Yeah. Yeah. And and you're I think you talked about in the book like can you go into why and how he trained and um, operated differently to traditional running in Japan? Yeah. So he he kind of suffered in the Ekiden system <clears throat> as a college student. He'd been he felt like he hadn't been picked for the top teams when he probably deserved it, and and he kind of yeah he's a bit of a maverick. So he didn't like this idea of the coach telling you what to do. Like I say, the coaches are very authoritarian. And he, he kind of felt like he wanted the freedom to run how he wanted to run. Also, he didn't get picked up by any of the professional teams initially. So he kind of had an axe to grind there. Like, you know, I'm better than you thought I was. So, yeah, he worked in, he wasn't actually, he worked in the office of a school. And, uh, yeah, Yuki Kauchi, his name is. And and he's, he's fascinating because he runs, what's very unusual about him is he runs about 10 marathons a year. And he often runs them. I mean, he's run lots of them in like sub two eight. He's run, I think he ran it weirdly. He ran his PB just recently, his best time. But he's, uh, he's run, I don't know how many marathons now, because he's been running for quite a few years, but he's run about, he runs about 10 a year. He's, he, he does odd things. Like he ran, he ran the world record half marathon in a panda suit. He ran the world record in a, in a office suit. <laughs> He also won the Boston Marathon about three or four years ago, uh, you know, one of the major marathons. So he's a really and, and he, ran, he ran that in his, his local prefecture uh, education system uh, outfit. So he runs for the, the that areas. He's like an anarchist. He's like an anarchist in the running community. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he turns up at the, the press conference and he's just wearing like non-branded uh, black like probably cost about five dollar uh shoe i mean he's not running in those but he, mm. he doesn't wear any sponsor any name out outfits i mean he did then about a year ago go professional finally uh and uh so so it'd be interesting to see what he would do but but yeah he was very critical of the system more because it kind of controlled you and you became as being an employee in one of these teams you basically you know if you want to run the tokyo marathon you have to go and ask your ask for permission from your bosses and they may or may not. It's like, you know, anyone in an office who's got to go and ask for time off work. You know, if you want to go and run the London Marathon or the Boston Marathon, you have to go and ask for it. And they might say, well, it's not not on our schedule for you this year. 
So he wanted more freedom. And it's interesting because Japan is often portrayed, and, and I guess I talk a lot about this, about being very kind of conforming society where everybody wants to be fit in and, and be part of the society rather than stand out. Yet at the same time, they really admire this guy and they really love him. Uh, so that, that's a whole interesting dynamic. They love him for being brave enough, I guess, to, mm -hmm. to kind of step out of the system and say, no, I'm going to do it my own way. But Japan has, you talk about optimizing stuff. It's, it is interesting because when I was there, I was amazed that they just simple things like they would do, they'd come out at six o'clock in the morning on a cold morning and they'd all do half an hour of static stretching, really deep static stretching. And I'm thinking even as an amateur runner in UK, I know that's not a very good thing to do. And this is a professional running team. And I talked to the coach about this. I said, do you, you know, is this something you do? And, and he had no idea that there was even this school of thought that you shouldn't be stretching. And so I think they were very inward looking at that point. And, but what was happening while I was there, and I think I was there at a, quite a pivotal moment in hindsight, is that there was this new wave of coaches, young coaches coming through who were starting to look outside. And I teamed up with one of the guys, uh, this team, Ritsumeikan University, and actually, they've done amazingly well since I since I was there. The year I was there, they did quite badly. And it's quite a sad story about how they don't quite live up to all his hopes and dreams. But since then, it has worked. And lots of the coaches who've won the Hakone Ekiden have been these new young coaches. Except this year, the team that won was one of the old guys. Mm. Uh, so I, I don't know. But, but what, what else has happened is the Tokyo Olympics on the horizon has kind of forced them to be a bit more innovative around running. And so they've had more of their top athletes not being fixed in this Ekiden system. So there's the guy who went to the US, Suguru Osaka. He broke the uh, Japanese record. Uh, and then the young Shitara twin broke, broke his Japanese record. Uh, and he, again, is someone who has quite unusual training methods. Uh, I can't remember what they are, but I remember reading about him. He doesn't, he doesn't follow the the high mileage system uh so so i think the tokyo olympics has been a real impetus and i think this idea of these new young coaches coming through at that point in time has really changed things in japan and as a result the results have got a lot better since then i think the national record in the marathons we've broken three times in japan in the last three years so i can see them doing really well in the olympics i can see japanese guy or japanese woman potentially winning i think at least definitely mm. getting a medal. So, and, and in, in Japan, in the Olympics, the biggest event will be the marathon, without a doubt. That mm. will be, you know, that's the one they, they will want to win. Uh, and of course, it's a tall order with the Kenyans and the Ethiopians, but often the Kenyans and the Ethiopians mess up their team because they've got so much choice, you know, they can only stick three runners in there. <clears throat> you know, when you go to a London marathon, they're like 10 Kenyans in there. <laughs> You've got to narrow it down to three, you know, and the Ethiopians always famously pick the wrong the wrong runners for the Olympics. So, so you probably the my most favorite uh, book that you've written, definitely my most uh, favorite book that you've written is the the rise of ultra runners. I think uh, that was a really really well done book. The interesting thing about that book was I felt that you were more prepared as a runner for that than running with the Kenyans. It's weird. It was like you were almost mentally, you came across mentally tougher in that whole journey. And 
it was a really, really well done book. Now, you talked earlier about how Westerners, we have more of this mentality of not quitting and pushing ourselves because it's more about the battle than the outcome in Kenya. Obviously, these guys are doing it. These women are doing it for a living, so they need to be smarter. But I think a lot of us in Western culture, we're trying to look to suffer more, right? Like we're tired of comfortability. And, you know, I had Joe DeSena on the on the show. He was our first guest. And we've talked many times about his view on, you know, purposeful suffering. He said, you know, if it was 300 years ago when we we're in frontier days, I'd say we need more couches. But it's not right. Like, he's, you know, he's all about getting out there and, and breaking ourselves a little bit. So you get into this weird and wonderful world of ultra running. And I know that you didn't really like it at first because you didn't feel like it was running and you were like, well, people are walking. This isn't running. So let's talk about how that whole uh, situation unfolded for you. Yeah. uh, Yeah. I mean, ultra running definitely is, is a completely different thing. Uh, It's good that you said I I seemed a bit tougher. I, I mean, I, I, you know, I felt I was challenged in ways I wasn't expecting. It, It became, Okay, less about running. I, I felt like my running ability was going to carry me through. And then, yeah, you get to that point where walking is tough, you know, or you, you'll know if you're an ultra runner, where, you know, just moving is, is, is the challenge in itself. Uh, but yeah, the, the motivations are definitely different. Uh, I mean, I had, that, I had that in quite stark contrast when I got the Kenyan guy over to the UK to run mm. an ultra that was he, interesting. He, he had yeah. a hurt foot and he quit. A toe, right? Yeah, a toe. A toe, right? I was like, you can't, this is ultra running. You don't quit over a sore toe. You were I'm so like, pissed off in the pro. <laughs> you were so pissed off. I just, I just couldn't believe it. You know, and, but it, what I realized is that, yeah, it's a completely different mindset, ultra running. It's like you're, you, you kind of prepare, you have to be prepared to suffer in a, in a different way. Obviously, even in a mile or a 5k you're you know you're going to suffer but it's it's so temporary it's so like it's just and it's all about maintain your form just maintain your form you'll get there you'll get there just like your heart's burning but it's is momentary but in an ultra run you've got real time to dwell on it and think about it and and, and that thought process is then you know that, then it becomes a mental challenge like can you tell yourself to keep going can you keep yourself going and are you going to give in to this suffering? And, and yeah, I think there's a, I definitely felt that there was a sense that in some ways, although at the time it felt awful and it felt like, Oh my God, what, you know, I don't want to do this. You then kind of break through that. I found in most races, you break through to a place where you're still probably moving quite slowly, but you kind of, it's like, you, you have to, it kind of forces you to forget about everything else, to zone in on just this action of moving. That's all you, that's all you can think about. And it, I guess it's a little bit like that thing flow, you know, flow is where you're kind of, you're completely absorbed by an activity and, and everything is just in, and, and there's a kind of a, a almost euphoric experience in, in that. Maybe euphoric is the wrong word, but a kind of a sense of kind of, being alive a very intense experience in the, in that moment when you're just existing you're just running it doesn't matter someone might say oh someone's stolen your car by the way you'd be like tell me about it later yeah i'm just 
keep running. I've got to keep moving. It's like, oh, you know, uh, can can you lend me a hundred hundred dollars or whatever? Yeah, just take it. Take it. <laughs> it's like I can't. I just got to keep moving. I'm just here in this, yeah. and it's all you can do. And then, and then there's, it becomes almost like a peaceful place. And I I got to the point where, having suffered and wanted to stop and wanted to stop. I got to the point in quite a few races where when I got to the finish, I got to a point where I was just, it was kind of a disappointment to finish. It was like, mm. oh, I'm just, I'm just there now. I just got to this place of kind of peace with, with what I'm doing and this action of moving. I know everything's aching, but I've just got it now. I could, I could do it a bit more. Of this. It, it's ultra running is a great level or two. Like it doesn't matter sex or speed unless the elites right generally the men will win but even with the elites women are winning the races and i too i mean on the weekend the race i did had a lot of hiking and usually as an ultra runner most of the trails i run are runnable i feel they're runnable even if they're inclines but it was incredibly frustrating because i'm running next to people that i'm faster than and they're hiking and I'm, I'm, I'm like, they're hiking at this unbelievable pace. Cause they got poles. I didn't yeah. have poles. Cause I'm not yeah. going to have poles. Right. I'm a runner. Right. Yeah. And they're pulling up these Hills. I'm trying to catch them. We get on some kind of runnable trail. Then I catch them. And then when we get to another Hill, they're like hiking away and I'm like, God, I just want to run. And it's so mentally taxing. And you really have to have the long view yeah. and you have to have staying power. Don't you in an ultra, like it's, it's a very different yeah. mindset. Yeah. It, yeah. It, it's, it's fascinating on so many, so many different angles that, I mean, yeah. I mean, I, yeah, I had moments like that where I was being overtaken by people who were walking, but they're, they're like, you know, you think walking and to me, when I would walk, I would walk slowly. These guys are walking, walking like, with like, purpose. Yeah. Yeah. Power walking. Uh, but yeah, the, yeah, I mean, huh, I don't know. <laughs> what did you, what do you feel? Do, do you feel that you learned anything about yourself through your ultra experience? I know a lot of people have this view and look, I'm, I would consider myself a spiritual person and that word is kind of weird to me, but I would consider myself a spiritual person and performance orientated, but I know there's this whole movement nowadays of find yourself through this running and this spiritual, and I'm a bit on the fence with it. Like, I think, yes, we, we have our experiences out there, but we're also fully engaged in endorphins and we're off our head. And so like, I'm a bit, when it gets to the airy fairy part, I'm a bit in the middle, I'd say I try to be a bit centered, but in saying that, do you find that you had any kind of realizations or any insights or you grew as a result of your experience in ultra? Yeah, I mean, I know what you mean. I think it's quite easy to read, you know, kind of put too much on that, you know, and say, oh, yeah, I just really discovered who I was, discovered <laughs> what I was capable of, discovered who I was. The Maybe meaning of life. But I, but there are I tell you what I, I did kind of feel a sense of after doing a few of these ultramarathons that you know kind of trivial problems didn't kind of knock you so much in, in daily life you know you kind of just feel a bit 
tough like not in a kind of hard like you're going to fight someone way but just slightly like you're, you're made of sturdy stuff and especially when you've been through some of that stuff and you've come out the other side and and you made it to the finish I mean I remember I mean it's it's a slightly silly example in a way but it just it was quite soon after one of my races and <clears throat> I got home and it was a, an unusual I, I got the I was getting home coming home from London on the train the last train and it gets to my small town at about midnight and there's been this huge snowfall in the winter, which is very unusual. And all the all the roads are shut. And there's no cars. There's no taxis coming to pick people up. Nobody's going to get lifts home. And a lot of people are panicking, kind of, how are we going to get home? How are we going to get home? And I just stepped off the train. It's late at night. I live about three miles away. And I think I'd have been a, I'd have been like a bit at a loss what to do, like pre-ultra running. But it didn't even, it was like nothing. Mm. It was like, I'm just going to walk home. I mean, who, you know, what is the big mm. deal? I mean, I mean, I guess everybody had to walk home. That was the only option in the end. But people had a lot of getting their heads around that. You know, it was like, how the hell am I? Gonna... But to me, it was like three miles home mm. in the middle of the night. It's a lovely, you know, snow is out. This is lovely. And and I just felt, I just remember feeling, yeah, this doesn't bother me at all. Not even for one second am I thinking, oh, you know, what a, what a heartache. What a, you know, what a problem this is. It's just like, this is nothing. So I guess you, you got that. I did. I didn't really realize this at the time, but I think I thought about it quite a lot after when I interviewed a lot of ultra runners, and I realized a lot of the ultra runners that are very good have this very, uh, a very emotionally very level. <laughs> so they're kind of like some, you know, they kind of almost if they're in a crisis or in that, they're in a great point in the race. If you talk to them, they're kind of on the same state. Well, I realize. Do you think it's learned, though? Do you think they've learned from fucking enough, I, fucking up enough? Yeah, that not think, to get too panic or not to get too excited. I think it comes from experience, definitely, and I, and I feel like, yeah, because what happens is when you're new to it, like I was, you you know, when things are going well, you kind of I, well. First of all, when things are going badly, you think they they're going really bad. You think everything is finished, so you're like you're you know, really what I was really wallowing in it. I was like this is stupid i hate this race i hate the race director for sending us up this route i hate everything i hate my bag i hate my shoes you know i just like i, I hate my boss down. you start even yeah. thinking about people that aren't there <laughs> i just wanted to sit down and cry and quit and somehow you get through that but then when then when i come through it i'd suddenly i'd overdo it i'd be like oh my god i and i start thinking I could win this race, you know, like I could come top 10 here. Like I've only taken three people. I could take another 30 and I'd be like, just like on such a high. I remember running through aid stations without even stopping mm. because I was so buzzing from feeling good and not even stopping for a drink. I mean, I was stupid in a way, but so, so that comes with experience, but I didn't realize, or maybe, maybe eventually I would learn that levelness, but I felt I was being much more emotional than I would have thought I was going to be. I wouldn't, I didn't kind of, have myself down as a a very emotional person so that was kind of interesting when i thought of, when i looked back I, on it i i um i totally agree with you and it's one of the reasons why i run to my heart right irrespective of how well i think i'm doing because i just yeah i find if i go anaerobic if i stay aerobic i'm fine you know and if i i've you really got to be in tune with your body uh yeah. sensing for hunger i don't listen to music because if I'm listening to music, my ego carries me away. You know, I think I'm Rocky Balboa. So there's all that going on. I, I do agree with you that a lot of the what we learn is transferable, especially if I'm in business. I find 
you know, you run an ultra on the weekend and, you know, and, and you bring that kind of mindset, that level of preparation and training required into your business environment and that level of um, disfocus and determination. There's, there's a lot of good that comes out of that. So I do agree with you that a lot of the skills are transferable. A lot of the learnings are transferable. I guess as we close this out, I want to ask you a completely unrelated question. And this is coming more from, um, from me, um, something that I've throughout your books, you've taken your family on all these weird and wonderful adventures. How have the kids um, fared as a result? I want to know, like, you know, they lived in Africa, they lived in Japan. How old are your kids now? And, and just reflecting, how have you felt all that experience has impacted them, positive or negative? Yeah, I think it's all been positive, actually. Although at the time, there were, it felt, it wasn't so clear that it was positive. Uh, like in Japan, they really struggled with the Japanese in the, in the school. And in Kenya, there were definitely times where they just felt like overprivileged, pampered, you know, children compared to the, the other kids. But when I look, so the eldest now is 17. So they're 17, 15 and 11 going on, going on 12 in a few weeks. Uh, I mean, the 12 year old is still, you know, he's still little and everything. But the, the two teenage girls, I mean, it's hard to separate out how much of it is to do with you know, the travel and how much is everything else. But they are one thing their teachers always say and, and people always remark how mature they are. So they're always, you know, told are they, you know, they're way and, and they seem to me super mature. I mean, I feel like they're two adults really. And uh and they just seem to adapt really well to situations. So that I mean it, I don't it, it depends on the country how crazy this is. But like when my daughter was eldest daughter was eleven, so after we'd come back from Japan, she went to a school in the next town uh, and she used to get the train there by herself. Uh, like in Japan, that would that would that would be completely normal. That wouldn't be a, a problem. But in England, that's that was a lot of people were like, "Whoa, eleven-year-old can't get the train on their own." You know, that's it's too dangerous. It's too you know they they'll get lost. They'll get you know kidnapped. They'll get mugged or whatever. But you could just tell she was completely capable of doing it. I so the first day I went with her, and I I thought maybe I'm going to have to go with her for a month. Maybe I have to go with her the whole year. And the first day I could just tell I did not need to be here. This this girl could deal with this. So, you know, and, and then, you know, they're, I mean, they're great kids. What can I say? I mean, she's she's got a scholarship to one of the most expensive schools in the country, actually. Wow. Uh, which may have nothing to do with travel at all. But you can take some credit for that, though, surely. Yeah. I, I do. <laughs> I, you know, I, try, I try not to. But yeah, she she sat these entrance exams and got flying marks and they gave her a scholarship. So yeah, so she's, you know, she's bright, she's mature, she's conscientious. They're, they're not runners. <laughs> Are you sad about that? Uh, not really, no, they're into stuff, you know, they're into like, the eldest is really into sailing. So we live oh, by right, the sea, okay. so she's out sailing. Uh, they're really into tennis. They. The youngest is potential runner. I, I haven't written him off yet, but it's still, they kind of, I think there is a bit of a reaction to mm. kind of being so immersed in the mm, There's a rebellious there, a rebellious streak. Yeah. So if, 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 if I um, were to ask you a couple simple, basic uh, habits that people that want to get into running 
would engage, what would you say? You know, I'm, I'm, I'm someone that wants to lose a little bit of weight. You know, what would you say would be a couple things I can do to get involved in running? Well, develop, develop, I suppose, supporting habits. Yeah. I mean, I mean, one thing which I, I, it depends where you live, of course, but if you can run on trails, uh, mm-hmm. at least some of the time, I think that's going to help you because it's, it's usually nicer. It's usually more, more enjoyable. Uh, it's, you're less likely to get injured, which is going to mm-hmm. ruin, going to ruin it for you if you're just starting up. Uh, and yeah, it's just nice on your joints and it's giving you more of an all round workout anyway. So, so that's a simple thing you can do. Uh, you know, probably over where, you, you know, in Australia, the trails are usually fairly dry and, and runnable. Like you say here, you kind of need special shoes to run on the trails with, with all the mud and stuff. But uh, yeah, and then I would just not worry about the, you know, the speed initially, you know, and not worry about even how far, you know, just enjoy the experience. There's a lot, it's a quite a, I mean, Strava and these kind of things, they can, they can be an incentive as well. And they can be quite, you know, so I, I wouldn't be totally against it, uh, but but I think if you can start doing it for the numbers rather than for the enjoyment. I agree. And, yeah. and that's the danger, because initially that might be an incentive, but it, I think the, the watch can become quite oppressive after a while. And uh, I, I, you think I use Strava, but I try and use it as a tool rather than be ruled by Strava. I try not to run because I'm trying to get a certain amount of mileage or trying to break certain segments, you know, it's just there to look back on what Mm -hmm. I've done. So I'd say starting out particularly, don't worry, don't feel like you need them, you know, a Strava watch and, and, and you need to run certain distance every week and a certain time, just run where you feel like, you know, go feeling is everything. I think with Mm -hmm. with running, be like a Kenyan basically. Yeah, that's it. I usually do whatever they do is usually good. Well, look, we'll leave it there at Haranand. I really, really appreciate your time. I, yeah, like I said, you're one of my favorite authors. So it was really cool having you on the show. We are looking forward to your next book. Are we, is there anything that we can expect or are you, are you retired in the running writing world? Definitely not retired, but I've been, uh, I've got a few ideas up in the air and I'm, uh, I've got a meeting with my publishers next week. So we'll see, we'll see what they say about them. But they're, they're, yeah, quite a diverse range of ideas. So, okay. Yeah. I'm not giving anything away just yet. <laughs> all right, mate. Well, look, all the best. You enjoy your, uh, your British night. I will talk to you soon, brother. Okay. Brilliant. It's been fun. Thanks a lot. Bye. Bye-bye.